Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. I am Dr. Nawaz Habib with my co-host here, JP Erico. Thanks so much for joining me again, JP. Great to be here. So today our topic is digestion and how the vagus nerve is involved in the digestive process. And really interestingly, and we're going to get through this, which direction does signaling really matter in with regards to the vagus nerve, with regards to how our brain and our gut interact with one another. And that's what we're going to get into today, as well as what are those target tissues that the vagus nerve does affect as well. Where are the signals coming in? Where are the signals going to? And then where are the signals coming out to within the gut as well? And we want to talk about that entire process because digestive sequencing and the process by which we digest our food and get those nutrients into our body is obviously very important for our survival. But how do we make sure that our digestion is functioning really well? I'd love to kind of start off talking about evolution and how we evolved to become, for lack of a better word, human in the sense of taking in our nutrients the way that we do and having our nutrients come into our bloodstream and get through to our cells to create the function that they do. And what's the nervous system involvement in that from an evolutionary standpoint? Sure. And I always like to think of the body as a tube. Um, It's probably pretty simplistic, but we have a huge amount of area, surface area in our bodies that are is actually exposed to the outside world. And I'm not talking about our external skin. I'm talking about our digestive tract. From our mouths to the other end, it's a tube. And so there's a lot of non-self, the food that we take in, the trillions of tiny little bacteria that live inside us that form our microbiome, which is both in our digestive tract as well as our respiratory tract. That area is a tube that takes in nutrients at one end and excretes out at the other end or expels through, again, through your breathing, expels out material with less nutrients or less of what it is that our body needs to take in. And so if you think about evolutionarily, billions of years of evolution were spent with nothing more than single-celled animals roaming the planet and mostly in the oceans. But at some point, those cells started to work together and to attach to one another and form tubes effectively. And those tubes would take in fluid at one end that was nutrient-rich and just the way we do, at the other end would come material that was less nutrient-rich because we took in those nutrients. But that was a passive process for millions of years until we evolved the ability to move from one place to another where we would go from a nutrient-depleted area to a nutrient-rich area in order to gather food. That is a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but the coordination of that propelling motion to get us from one place to another and to sense where the food was in a higher concentration, that takes some coordination. That takes some level of synchronous motion. In fact, even pushing that fluid through that tube in the right direction can sometimes take some level of coordination. In fact, in humans, we have peristaltic motion, which helps us to move things through our digestive system, not simply based on gravity or which way the wind's blowing. And so that coordination 
required some rudimentary level of an autonomic nervous system. And so in my mind, and you know, this is yet to be proven, but in my mind, that's really the genesis or the beginnings of the vagus nerve and the autonomic nervous system. Now, where did it evolve from there? Well, those sense organs weren't simply just little chemical sensors. They became more complicated, ultimately eyes and ears and sense of smell and taste, et cetera. And those different senses needed to be coordinated as well. So we needed a central nervous system that would control that. And then yet at the same time, that central nervous system that was processing all of that sensory information needed to be utilized in a way to get us to food. And again, the autonomic nervous system helps us control all the different mechanisms, whether they be digestive or metabolic, or in the case of muscle movement, to get us to the food. So all of that is sort of how it evolved. And I think if, if you think about it that way, it's, it's constructive in terms of your understanding of where we are today. Yeah, no question. And we have to start in that simplified manner to understand how we progressed into the complexity that we are now, that there is a simplified reason for why we do a lot of the things that we do. And I do honestly believe that we are almost like this donut-shaped kind of complex being that has a tube that runs through it, through which we extract our nutrients and take our nutrients in to allow for ourselves to do their job. I think it is absolutely a simplified way of looking at it, but it's a necessary simplification that needs to be done to fully understand where we came from and why we act the way that we do. When it comes to that process of digestion, that too has become more complex as well, right? We're talking about having different areas of that tube, having different functions and having different requirements for nutrients that it's both in need of and extracting from our food. So when it comes to that tube, that tube begins in the mouth. Oral health is very, very important when it comes to understanding that it plays a very massive role in the whole digestive process. If we just simplify it again, this is where we physically break down our food pretty effectively using our teeth. This is where we need to chew. And a lot of people from a clinical perspective, something that I notice is we tend not to chew our food really well. A lot of the food that we have become accustomed to having in our diet tends to break down very easily and we don't actually chew our food as well as we should. What we should theoretically be feeling is that our food almost liquefies in our mouth because we've physically broken it down enough. And you'll notice, and this is true for those who have started to actively do this more mindfully, is when you chew your food down more effectively, you're actually tasting it more in a different way. And you actually start to taste your food really, really interestingly. Do you have any insight when it comes to kind of that oral cavity, what happens in the mouth and the effect that it's going to have as the digestive sequence is then triggered? Oh my gosh, yes. And that was a really good explanation. There's different places in your digestive system where you are extracting the nutrients. There's certainly areas within your intestines where there's extraction of specific things. And if you actually have a section of your bowel removed as a result of a surgery, or it becomes damaged as a result of an inflammatory bowel dysfunction, what you end up with is the failure to be able to very specifically extract certain nutrients out. But that begins in the mouth. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, water can be absorbed through the lining of, of your mouth, the endothelial tissue. But there's also sensors there that sense sugar. And it's not just what you're tasting, 
but your brain is actually extracting really important subconscious cues as to how the digestive system is going to proceed simply by what enters your mouth. And it can unfortunately be confused. Chewing gum with certain flavors can actually trigger your digestive system to do things and you're not actually swallowing anything. So that's one piece of what you said. Another piece of what you said that I find interesting is the breaking down, the physical breaking down of food. And it's an interesting evolutionary realization or fact that the size of the human brain itself is a byproduct of the fact that we cook our food. And just to explain why, if you are an animal grazing on the plains of Africa, you are spending a tremendous amount of time and energy literally breaking down the cellulose and other things that are non-digestible that are blocking your body from being able to gain access to the nutrients. And therefore, if you look at sort of the hours per day spent and you look at the number of calories per hour that you're getting through that process of food gathering and food eating, we have become remarkably more efficient because we cook our food. We actually begin the digestive process, if you will, by cooking our food. When you eat raw food, that's wonderful for you, obviously, because it, on many levels, it's triggering a different type of microbiome that's important for you to have, but it's a slower digestive process. When you cook your food, you have the ability to intake many, many, many more calories than you would if you were eating only raw foods. And why is that important for brain development? Well, the brain is an incredibly energy-intensive unit in the body. I think one quarter to a third of all of the energy that we use is taken up by that very small amount of tissue inside our skulls. And it's so metabolically intense that in order for it to grow to the size that it is, we needed to be able to take in way more calories than an animal of a similar size that had a much smaller brain. And if you look at it even today, for our size, we're incredible eaters. We're incredible digesters of calories. Yeah, it all begins in the mouth. And when we look at it evolutionarily, it makes so much sense that we are where we are simply because of some of these simplified things. And I absolutely agree that the entire process of digestion does actually begin when you cook your food because the smells, the aromas, the environment of cooking does actually play an important role because that sensation of the food coming in and the taste that we have Taste and smell are so heavily linked from a sensory perspective in creating that salivary reflex. When you smell food that smells really good, smells really exciting to taste, you're going to start salivating. And that's the production of chemicals in salivary amylase that's going to start to break down the food chemically in addition to the chewing that's going to happen. Those senses are sending signals up to the autonomic nervous system, to the nuclei in the brain to create the signaling down to the other digestive organs to start to create the effect of being able to then digest that food effectively. We're going to start producing stomach acid within the stomach. We're going to start producing pancreatic enzymes that are going to be necessary for digestion as those nutrients start to enter the body because it's not going to happen within the time frame of taking a bite and the food getting to the intestines. It needs a little bit more time in order to do that. And so we actually start the digestive process internally 
prior to the food actually even entering our mouth. Once it does enter the mouth, then we physically break down our food using our teeth. And so for those who are having some trouble from a digestive process, I highly recommend just taking some time to chew your food really effectively. I've seen people transform their health with that initial step playing a very, very important role. So this is something that I would recommend to anybody who is kind of suffering from any sort of digestive or chronic health type issue. The next step that we see then is the salivary amylase starts to coat that food. The saliva is going to start liquefying it, making it a little bit easier to then digest. And the chemical breakdown process is going to occur as the bolus, as the food starts to enter into the next stage of the digestive sequence, which is then the esophagus. So it goes through the pharynx and into the via the epiglottis down to the esophagus. And so it starts to enter the tube that goes down through the thorax. And we have almost a peristaltic motion that's pushing that food down into the stomach. And actually, prior to that, I just kind of remembered that I forgot to mention the oral microbiome is very, very important here as well. We've heard microbiome spoken about a lot. The oral microbiome plays a very important role in the digestive sequence. And if that oral microbiome is off, this is where we are more likely to be prone towards oral health issues. Things like halitosis, things like cavities, things like breakdown of our teeth. And so our ability to then chew actually decreases significantly as well. Anything that we swallow, any foods that we take in, anything that we break down, those bacteria that are in the mouth actually are entering the digestive tract as well. And so as those bacteria enter, they play an important role in that whole sequencing. And we'll talk about how we can get rid of some of those and how our body creates a protective mechanism to eliminate those as we get down. Any insights as the food then enters into the esophagus? I would just echo what you said. The microbiome that begins in your mouth is quite different as it moves through the system. So uh, it is important at every level to have the right microbiome. There's certainly cancer patients, for example, um, oftentimes have change of taste and change of the ability to digest simply because they have a yeast infection in their mouths because they're breaking down their immune system's ability to control the microbiome in the mouth. On the other end of the esophagus is the upper esophageal sphincter, which is a valve that will open up as food enters and basically keeps the contents of your stomach from refluxing back up proper function of that upper esophageal sphincter is incredibly important because malfunction of that will literally prevent food from getting down there, can cause ultimately esophageal tears and, and other malformations of the esophagus. So it's really important that that functions well. And just as a side note, it's heavily innervated by the vagus nerve. Your vagus nerve as part of your autonomic nervous system is controlling that function. And we see in a lot of people with stress or with inflammation or other problems, they actually have symptoms that begin at the upper esophageal sphincter. Reflux is, is certainly something that be triggered, but also just Barrett's esophagus and other problems that can arise. And some of that, I won't say all of it, but some of it can be mediated by properly balancing autonomic tone. Yeah, no question about it. Vagus nerve involved in the whole digestive sequence is profound. It's they're almost one in the same because of the number of interacting uh, connections between the vagus nerve and the digestive tract. 
So then as we continue on down through the esophagus, we then get to the stomach. And we've got two sphincters, one at the top, you mentioned the upper esophageal. There's also then the lower esophageal sphincter entering into the stomach. And I just want to echo what you mentioned there, that we don't want anything, food or digestive enzymes or stomach acid or whatnot, going in the wrong direction. We don't like digestion is a unidirectional pathway. It's supposed to go in one direction only. And when we have anything happening in an opposing direction or in the opposite direction of what it's supposed to do, it's a direct sign that the vagus nerve is not able to do the job that it needs to. Sometimes that can happen automatically or in an unwanted fashion, such as reflux. Sometimes this happens in, unfortunately, a wanted manner in the sense of bulimia nervosa. It's a condition that people are going to actively cause food to come up and we're going to purge meals that have been eaten. This is a really common occurrence. Something that I look for when I'm speaking to my patients, when I'm speaking to my clients, is a past history of some sort of eating disorder. Something like anorexia, which would not allow for the digestive system to be turned on effectively because we're just not eating and we're avoiding having foods come in. And then bulimia is actually forcing the, the food to come up by activating the gag reflex, creating that motor pattern of pushing the food out in the opposite direction. We're actually causing dysregulation of the vagus nerve and of the entire digestive tract. So these are just important clinical pearls when a clinician is talking to a patient. Keep an eye out for one of those potential eating disorders. And then food will then get down past the esophagus into the stomach. Yeah, it's just it's really important also to recognize that the tissues of your mouth and your esophagus are designed for the pH of food coming in. And yes, there's going to be some levels of acidity in that, but the tissues are really not designed for handling the very low pH that's in the stomach. A two or a three pH is beyond what that tissue is really comfortable handling. And as a result, you can actually cause some chemical damage if there's too much of the of vomiting or bulimia. You'll see in those patients the risk of esophageal tear, which can be fatal, is very high. I was also going to say that just physically, beyond the autonomic nervous system, but just physically, there is a hole in the diaphragm. So your diaphragm is the muscular structure that's actually compressing and expanding your lungs to allow you to breathe. It's a large muscle. And in order for food to get from your mouth through the esophagus down to the stomach, which sits below the diaphragm, there needs to be a hole in the diaphragm. That is the diaphragmatic defect. And that diaphragmatic defect, I mean, it's called a defect, but it only means because there's a hole in it. If you have a, this is why it's so important to have the right posture while you're eating. Unfortunately, people nowadays like to sit and eat in bed or they're eating in front of the TV and they're slouched over. That's not how we evolved, actually. We spent a lot of time actually standing while eating and walking and moving while eating. And so as a result, that failure to maintain the right posture. And unfortunately, sometimes that posture is, is affected by how much weight we're carrying also. But in those situations, it can move the lower esophageal sphincter or the upper esophageal sphincter into the wrong position relative to the diaphragmatic defect. And when that happens, a portion of the stomach, it's actually the lower esophageal sphincter that's really the most critical, because if that gets 
above the diaphragmatic defect or a portion of the stomach itself, the top of the stomach, gets above the diaphragmatic defect, you can end up with food not being able to pass through that sphincter or even if it gets through the sphincter, can't get actually into the larger area of the stomach and food piles up inside your esophagus. So it's not necessarily an autonomic nervous system or directly an autonomic nervous system problem, but the autonomic nervous system isn't going to be able to drive food the way it should into your stomach unless you're sitting with the right posture or standing when you're eating. I'm not telling everybody they have to have their Sunday dinner while standing, but I do think that maintaining the right posture at the table, which, you know, if you're old enough, your mother was telling you, sit up, you know, that sort of thing at the table. There's a reason for that. You will digest and bring the food to your stomach more effectively if you have the right posture. I'm recalling Jordan Peterson saying, sit up straight with your shoulders back, just kind of playing in my head hearing that. But it makes so much sense. Posturally, we're, we're built to have things work the way that we're supposed to. If we're in a slouched or hunched position, we're not allowing our ribs to expand. We're not allowing our diaphragm to do its job. And that can weaken that diaphragmatic quote-unquote defect to allow the stomach to actually herniate through and become what's called a hiatus hernia, which is one of the major physical reasons for reflux in more commonly in the Western world, sadly. That makes a lot of sense as well because of our environment and kind of the way that we do things around here generally. So that makes a lot of sense. It's an important piece of information there as well. Now, once we get down into the stomach, and as the food is passing down through the esophagus, I want to mention that there is a bit of a stretch reflex that's signaled via the vagus nerve up to the brain, that we're experiencing a stretch through the esophagus. We don't generally feel that consciously, but it is a subconscious reaction that's occurring as food then goes and enters into the stomach, passing through the lower esophageal sphincter and getting into that stomach space. And the stomach has multiple functions there. First off, stomach acid production is going to occur. This is hydrochloric acid, which very low pH, meant to chemically now break down our food. We don't have teeth anywhere else, so we have to use our teeth and our mouth to physically break it down. But we have chemical production that's going to occur in the stomach that's going to help chemically break down that food into its component macro and micronutrients, or ideally as close to that as it possibly can be before it passes through the stomach. We also have the production of intrinsic factor, which is necessary for the absorption of vitamin B12, which is an absolutely imperative vitamin that we need to be taking in. It's required for the methylation process. It's required for so many different processes within our body. And vitamin B12 needs to get in. And the stomach is the place that's going to produce that intrinsic factor to allow for that to occur. So stomach function needs to be optimized to allow for that to occur. We also then have, in a more physical sense, a stretch reflex within the stomach, which is very imperative to that entire process of the production and breakdown of the food within the stomach. Do you want to dig into the stomach itself and talk about some of the functions there as well? Yeah, and I always like to talk about Mother Nature liking to use the same tools or the same tricks over and over again. The vagus nerve, as you said, is triggered by stretch receptors in the esophagus and in the outer curvature of the stomach. They also exist in other places. The example that I 20 years ago started learning about was where the stretch receptors in the lungs. Um, that's why taking deep breaths, that's why those prana breathing techniques, learning how to diaphragmatically breathe is 
so important because you actually activate the vagus nerve. And so bringing this all together, you talked about bulimia and anorexia. Those are actually characterized or classified by the psychiatric community as anxiety disorders. Well, anxiety, we know when somebody's stressed out or anxious, we tell them just, we tell them to take a deep breath. Why is that part of our language? Just say, hey, relax, take a deep breath. You take a deep breath because it activates the stretch receptors in your lungs. And activating the stretch receptors in your lungs will activate the vagus nerve. And activating the vagus nerve, as we've discussed before, will cause the release of inhibitory neurotransmitters in the central nervous system that will quiet the inflammation and quiet the process that leads to anxiety. So it really does have a root in science. We didn't understand why taking a deep breath 100 years ago when someone said, chill, take a deep breath. They probably didn't say chill. But what, what I'm saying is that they didn't realize the scientific background, but they certainly knew and observed the effect that taking a deep breath had. So stretch receptors are really important. They exist in the esophagus. They exist in the stomach. The digestive process that's happening in the stomach becomes more active and vigorous while there's food there, but it actually happens when you smell food, when you see food, when you're cooking food, being around food. I, I find even just being around the kitchen. I'm so Pavlovian at this point. It's not even the bell ringing that makes me hungry or salivate. It's the fact that I see the bell sitting on the counter. <laughs> so if I'm even in the kitchen, I get hungry. If I start talking about food, I can feel hunger. Our brains are wired. It's such an important part of survival. We're wired to get that entire digestive system functioning and moving, even at the earliest sign that we might be eating. So that motion that begins and is part of the digestive process and part of is all mediated through the central nervous system and its interaction with the autonomic nervous system. And it's the brain-gut axis. You like to call it the gut-brain axis because the direction of information is actually more going up into the brain to give information, but it's a bi-directional highway. Yeah, there's no question. It is a bi-directional highway. I do like to call it the gut-brain axis. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into the small intestine to talk about directionality of flow, but it makes a lot of sense. Those stretch receptors are sending a lot of information through the vagus nerve up to the brain to say, hey, there's stretch going on here. And that's going to have multiple actually different effects. It's going to actually lead to initially a satiety reflex because we're saying, oh, wow, the stomach is stretched. We're experiencing this satiation idea and maybe we should stop taking in some food. This is actually a sense called interoception that I would almost call like the sixth sense that we have, which is actually feeling what's going on internally within our bodies and how things are processing. And so that stretch receptor is initially kind of a state of interoception with regards to quantity of food that we've taken in. Have I taken in enough? Is my stomach feeling stretched? Do I need to take a break or do, can I end my meal with, at this time? And if we don't have that sense really strongly, then overeating becomes very easy. And this is where a lot of people will take in really high calorie, nutrient poor foods and actually not feel that stretch reflex occurring because from a physical standpoint, the food is not exactly stretching the stomach as much and we're not getting that sense up into the brain. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. We talked earlier about the fact that the evolution of the human brain really was enabled by the fact that we cooked our food and that we were able to concentrate nutrients into higher or smaller volumes and be able to 
eat calories much more efficiently than we did before. But cooking food, we've sort of taken that maybe to the next level without having a big enough brain to do so, to really accommodate. What we have right now is processed food that, as you said, is high calorie, but less filled with the vitamins and minerals and other things that need to be included in it. They're just basically almost pre-digested food. A lot of the things that we take in now that are I can't imagine the caloric concentration that we're now capable of chemically and in manufacturing that allows us to eat thousands and thousands of calories in very short periods of time. And all you have to do is go to a fast food restaurant that's required to put the number of calories on the entree. And you look and you see that some of these entrees have 2,500 calories, 2,800, 3,200 calories. I've seen some places, you know, I won't name the, the restaurants, but I mean, there's some places where the appetizers have an entire day's supply of calories, clearly not all the nutrients that you need to have in that day's supply, but that's just an appetizer. And the stomach was evolved to have sort of an understanding as to the volume to calorie ratio. And so I think that's what you were sort of talking about is that there's a calorie to volume ratio. I'll, I'll switch the fraction around, but a calorie to volume ratio that is probably a lot lower than most of the foods that people eat. And as a result, in modern society, we are taking in far more calories than really our stomachs are prepared to give us the satiety. Ideally, by the time you reach 800 or 1,000 calories in a given sitting, the volume that's in your stomach should be sufficient to tell your brain, hey, I don't need to eat anymore right now. I got enough in there. But it's now possible that you could eat two to three times that number of calories and still feel like you haven't gotten to your meal yet, which is one of the reasons that people say drink a lot of water when before you eat or while you're eating. I suggest before you eat because when you drink that water, you're expanding the stomach volume quite a bit and it has no calories, but there's also a time lag. There's a time lag. You don't reach that point where you're full until way after, if you've continued eating, where you're actually going to start to get distension pain and your stomach is going to feel too full. So I would suggest drink some water, maybe a glass or two of water before you sit down to eat, especially if you're going out to a restaurant. Drink some water. Don't eat the bread too much. Drink the water. And when your meal comes, you're going to find that halfway through or three quarters of the way through that high caloric meal, your stomach is sending the signals that say, hey, I'm full. And that's the trigger. You should listen to that. Because at that point, honestly, the remainder of your evening is going to be much more comfortable. Because if you've stopped at that point, well, the water is going to get through your system pretty quickly. You're going to feel full. And yet you're not going to be over full for too long. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm also a big proponent of water prior to the meal. I don't love it during because it can have an effect of raising stomach pH as water pH is at seven. And so it may decrease the ability for stomach acid to do its job if you're eating your meal and drinking water at the same time. Not to the extent of like an alkaline would and bring the pH up, but obviously even a minimal effect of raising pH from like a 1.5 to 2.5 is going to have some effect in the ability to break things down. So pre the meal is certainly a better option. When it comes to that stomach acid, I also want to kind of mention that stomach acid has a second effect. And it's not just 
chemically there to break down our food, which it is, and that's a very important initial process that hydrochloric acid is breaking down food into its chemical components. But I mentioned earlier that the food that we're eating and the bacteria in our mouth are actually entering our digestive tract. And this is where the microbiome needs to be kind of given a pause and we need to actually stop the ability of these bacteria to then enter the next part of the digestive tract, which is the small intestine. Now, the small intestine should have, by a long shot, the lowest number of bacteria within it. It is not built for microbiome function within the small intestine. What the stomach acid in the stomach does, in addition to breaking down the food, is actually to sterilize, to kill off a lot of these bacteria, potential parasites, yeast, viruses, worms that may be entering into the small intestine and creating the sterilization effect to allow for generally only the nutrients of our food to then enter the small intestine, which is very, very long. And I'll explain a little bit more why we don't want a lot of those bacteria in the small intestine. So just a very important second role of that stomach acid that's being produced there. Yeah. And the other thing that's going on inside the stomach that can be a dysfunction is if the bacteria that get into the stomach are not ideally suited, or if they're capable of surviving more and more importantly, as we now understand the genesis of ulcers, the bacteria, there are forms of bacteria, actually archaea bacteria, which is an entirely new life form that we've discovered within the last 20 or 30 years. There are forms that can live in extreme conditions. And one of those conditions is in the stomach. Now, the stomach is so acidic that it's actually digesting itself. The tissue of the stomach actually recycles every about two weeks because it happens so quickly. And that inner lining only lasts for a matter of a few days. So it's constantly churning out new tissue. If there's a dysfunction in that process and the resorption and the phagocytizing of those dead cells, you can end up with a hole literally being burned inside the wall of the stomach by that acid. And it's interesting to note that physicians 50, 100 years ago used to, as one of the possible treatments for an ulcer, because they didn't understand that there was a bacterial cause, they used to cut the vagus nerve as one possible way of doing that. Now, the reasons why that might be effective are complicated and maybe not appropriate for this, this discussion right now, but I think it would be counterintuitive in my mind to do that because what you're doing is exacerbating the dysfunction of the system. But in some cases, if the dysfunction is in the direction where too much vagal tone or wrong signaling is happening through there, then disconnecting isn't necessarily a bad thing for that problem. But nowadays, there's antibiotics that people can take that can clear that up much more effectively. So yeah. people are not doing vagotomies anymore to treat ulcers. Thank God for that. I will say something that we test for when I have a patient come in, part of the stool testing that we do for the microbiome is to test for something called helicobacter pylori, H. pylori, which is one of the more common stomach acid or stomach bacteria that are present. And these particular bacteria are quite common in low doses or in low quantities, but when they become excessive, they can create these problems of actually triggering ulcers. So one of the major reasons for ulcers is helicobacter pylori. 
what this particular bacteria loves to do is actually go to the beta cells of the stomach and shut down the production of stomach acid. They actually break down and kill off a lot of these stomach acid producing cells. And that's where it actually creates the hole by which stomach acid can then enter and create that ulcer. From a pathophysiological perspective, the bacteria are the trigger for that. So if there is a stomach issue, H. pylori, more often than not, can be found as a potential root cause for a lot of these particular conditions. And there are some herbal remedies and there are some antibiotic remedies that have been produced both pharmaceutically and that have been around in Mediterranean medicine for many, many years. Mastica chios being one of those that's really effective in helping to kill off H. pylori when it is present. It's a Mediterranean medicine found particularly in a Greek island, but it's highly effective naturally to help eliminate this. And it's been used for thousands and thousands of years. So, Because antibiotics can sometimes also disrupt the rest of the microbiome. And as a result, yes, it is having a positive effect, but it has uh, negative consequences to it as well. Exactly. And antibiotics tend to be a little bit more like napalm. They're just kind of going across and knocking everything out where we can, if possible, target the particular tissue that or bacteria that's triggering a lot of these problems and not have the same negative consequences further down within the microbiome in the large intestine that we wouldn't want to have. So that's an important factor as well. In a future episode, I believe it's the next one, we're going to talk about gastroparesis and we're going to dig into how the stomach function and the stretch receptors play an important role there, the vagus nerve function and the vagus nerve involvement in gastroparesis, uh, basically the paralysis of the stomach and the inability to create gastric emptying. But that's a really important thing to kind of mention just as we're in the stomach right now. So as the food then continues on, through the stomach, it then passes through the pyloric valve, which is basically a sphincter at the end of the stomach, and the food then enters into the intestine. The intestine is broken down into three parts, the duodenum, the ileum, and the cecum, and these three parts have slightly different roles, but we'll just talk generally today about the small intestine and the makeup of the vagus nerve and innervation to the small intestine. So what's going on within the small intestine? It's called the small intestine not because it's short. It's actually significantly longer than the large intestine. But rather, the actual tube of the small intestine is very, very narrow, and it's very, very thin. In fact, the epithelial lining of the small intestine is only a single cell thick. It is a very, very thin barrier. It's particularly built in that way to help us absorb particular nutrients, macro and micronutrients, through the intestinal lining more effectively and get it into the bloodstream rapidly. But this is why we don't want to have a whole ton of bacteria in the small intestine, because this is where, if bacteria are present, they can cause what's known as leaky gut syndrome more often than not, is within that small intestine, simply because the barrier is quite narrow, quite small, and relatively easy to break versus what's present in the large intestine, which is anywhere between 10 and 20 cells thick. When we get down to that level, we'll talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about the small intestine and what happens within there. Sure. There's a couple of things that happen that are that I think are pretty critically important. And I think it's worth maybe digging in a little further into what that single cell layer, what backs it up, what other cells are sort of floating around in that same milieu that are really important. Um, One of the things about structurally, there's the need 
to inject into the small intestine uh, a couple of different chemicals and biological products that are and enzymes that are really important for breaking down food and to ultimately isolate nutrients like vitamins and minerals and other things that so that they can be pulled out of through the wall of the intestine into the bloodstream. That generally comes into the small intestine a few inches past where the pyloric valve is through a, a structure called, it's got a couple of different names. One's called the sphincter of Odi. One is called the ampulla evader, but they're basically describing the same structure. And it is a valve that is allowing in pancreatic enzymes and bile. And so let's talk a moment about the structures that are present there. You have your liver, which is pretty constantly producing bile. And bile is, has a, a bunch of different components in it, enzymes, acids, bile acid is particularly strong, but there's also cholesterol, lots of cholesterol in that material. And that's constantly flowing through the bile duct down towards that sphincter that sits at the bottom of that duct. You need to have that bile injected into the food stuff that, to help digestion, that a sphincter will open and close. About three quarters of the way to four fifths of the way down that bile duct, it has another tube that intersects with it, which is the duct that's bringing pancreatic enzymes into it. So the, both of those fluids will come through that sphincter vader or the sphincter of Odi into, into the small intestine. All of those materials are constantly being created. Now, there may be an ebb and flow to their manufacture, but if you starve yourself for a while, there's going to be a buildup of bile and pancreatic enzymes that's building up in that duct, in that tube. Now, that tube does not have the ability to expand and contract or change its diameter very much. So a buildup of pressure in that could be very, very painful. And so I realize it's a little off topic of digestion, but it's a really interesting topic that the system actually has a way of relieving that pressure that's building up, which is your gallbladder. So that material, which we, you know, includes the pancreatic enzymes and the bile are collectively called gall or used to be called gall. And you have a bladder that will open and expand and contract as needed. Now, what happens is, especially during dieting or fasting, is some of that cholesterol that's in that material can actually crystallize out. And so what you end up with is slowly the development of crystal structures, balls of cholesterol that have hardened and have become stones. And that's what gallstones are. Now, most people have some level of gallstones in their gallbladders. But at some point that can become infected, that can become painful, that can require surgical intervention. And if that takes place, you remove the gallbladder. You don't just remove the stones, you remove the gallbladder itself. And that actually has consequences. One of the consequences is you've lost the ability of that tube, that bile duct, to have a relief valve. And so if you end up with a problem where you fasted for too long or otherwise, there's what's referred to as upper right quadrant pain. You end up with debilitating pain, much like a kidney stone pain that builds up because that tube is not able to flex 
And when there's the pressure builds up, there's pain receptors that are extremely potent that will give you pain. So one of the solutions is to go in endoscopically relieve the pressure simply by disabling that muscle, that sphincter that is opening and closing. Interestingly, it's possible to electrically stimulate that instead of destroying that sphincter, you could either electrically stimulate it directly or stimulate the autonomic nervous system that's controlling that, which is of course vagally mediated, so that you can have relief of that valve. But the other way is, of course, to cut it open. And that's what an endoscopic sphincterotomy is. They come in endoscopically with a little scalpel and they cut it and they disable it. What we find is that people who have a constant flow of bile into that small intestine will have cravings, hunger pains, simply a sort of insatiable desires to eat because it's sort of the reverse. Your body needs the bile to digest, but it needs food if it's got the bile there. So hunger pains that come out of that process can be quite overwhelming. And people who have gallbladder procedures and have that problem, that hypertension and need to have that procedure done, oftentimes end up gaining a significant amount of weight because they're eating more just to satisfy that, that sort of subconscious craving. You're bringing me back to my high school days when I observed, I believe the number was about eight laparoscopic cholecystectomy surgeries that were done where they laparoscopically removed the gallbladder. And I got to the point where I could have probably done the surgery myself, having watched it as many times as I did. But gallbladder or gallstones are so, so common. And I think there's a heavy link here to vagus nerve function. When the vagus nerve is not functioning well enough, we're not getting the stretch signaling to the brain, and we're not getting that efferent signaling from the vagus nerve to the gallbladder to actually create that pump and release the sphincter and allow for that gall, including the bile and the pancreatic enzymes to enter the small intestine effectively. And I think what happens in addition to potentially fasting too long or something along those lines where the gallbladder is unable to effectively get rid of some of the fluid that's in there, the crystallization that can occur leading to the production of those stones may be linked to vagus nerve dysfunction. I think there's a heavy link there and that's a very common finding. If somebody is dealing with gallstones, especially chronic longer term, we're looking at potentially vagus nerve being heavily affected there. Yeah. And just as a side note, I would say that procedure, that endoscopic sphincterotomy, which is performed in order to relieve really debilitating pain in that upper right quadrant is also something that leaves the individual susceptible to reflux. Remember, that tube from your mouth to the anus is non-self. It's filled with, it's non-sterile. And that sterile barrier, that sphincter, that sphincter vodi or the ampulla vader is there to prevent reflux. But if it's disabled, surgically disabled, there's the potential for food and non-sterile material to get back up into that bile duct and into the pancreas or into the liver, and you can end up with infections, pancreatitis and liver infections that are life-threatening. And so it's very important that we find better ways to manage that sphincter. And if it turns out that neuromodulation could help, whether it be chemically or physically or electrically, stimulating the autonomic nervous system in a way that could restore normal function we may be able to relieve that pain and 
ultimately reduce the risk of pancreatitis and other potential consequences of non-sterile reflux into that tissue. No question. Talking, talking a little bit, getting back to the small intestine. The small intestine has a very, very thin endothelial layer, which is only a single cell thick. But there are other cells that are around it. So I, I don't want people to think it's so tissue paper thin that it's easy to tear or anything like that, because there is a muscular structure that surrounds that single layer. When you say single layer, what you really mean is that the barrier, I think what you mean by is that the barrier between the non-sterile area and the capillaries that are going to take up the nutrients that are coming through that one cell thick layer, that is right there. I mean, it's literally only one cell away. And so it's very, very important to maintain that barrier in a healthy way. And we talked about earlier the fact that there's a lot of turnover of those cells. Mm -hmm. Those cells are being sloughed off and turned over on a matter of just a few days. Within that network of tissue, there are it's concentrated with lots and lots of macrophages. In fact, by some people's measure, up to 50% of all of the macrophages in your body are lining that endothelial layer to make certain that any bacteria that get through, because it's only one layer thick and sometimes they're being sloughed off, that the macrophages there are able to digest those bacteria, phagocytize them, take them out of commission, block them basically from entering into the bloodstream and causing sepsis or other problems, or even just getting up into the liver. So what you've got is this barrier of a couple of different types of macrophages. You've got the, the muscularis macrophages, which sit inside the muscle. So they're sort of on the other side of the barrier. And then you've got the mucosal macrophages, which are there at that endothelial layer. And their job is to really, frankly, constantly be surveilling and eating bacteria that's non-self. But what we don't want is for those macrophages to become inflammatory. And so it's, it's a little different from other macrophages in the body. There's so many different types of macrophages once they differentiate based on where they're located. If, for example, if you've got a macrophage sitting in your kidney and there's an infection that takes place or in the skin and there's an infection, there's an, a penetration of pathogens into that tissue, those macrophages will become pro-inflammatory very quickly. Their job is to fight against that bacterial invasion. And they do it in a pro-inflammatory position. That's sort of what people used to call the M1 state. Yes. But in the small intestine, those macrophages, the muscularis and the mucosal macrophages, they need to do that so constantly, so regularly, and they need to be able to differentiate between good bacteria and bad bacteria. And they do that, and they do it from a non, I'm not going to call it a anti-inflammatory state, because I think that's sort of a misnomer. They're doing it in a non-inflammatory state. They are not looking to recruit monocytes into the tissue and increase the number of macrophages. They're not sending out the types of signaling proteins necessary to bring in other macrophages. They've got the job handled. They use what they need in terms of the, the inflammatory cytokines that they use. They use it in a posture that is not amplifying the inflammation. They're doing it in a controlled fashion. And I think that's a really important thing because when that gets out of control, and it can get out of control based on eating the wrong things, it can get out of control if the autonomic nervous system is, because it's all 
managed and controlled in part through the autonomic nervous system. And the enteric nervous system is involved as well. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about the enteric nervous system. We should do that. But all of that is in a controlled state. When that control is lost, those macrophages can become pro-inflammatory and they can start recruiting in monocytes and tissue, new recruited in tissue macrophages that can become destructive. And that's where you end up with getting inflammatory conditions in the bowel, like inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's disease is a little south there, but ulcerative colitis and other things like that can be, can be debilitating, can be lethal because it destroys that sanctity of that volume that can be non-sterile relative to the sterile environment that's beyond there. So I think that's giving a little bit of structure around some of that, what we're talking about. Maybe talking a little bit about the enteric nervous system would be important. Yeah, I would heavily agree there. The enteric nervous system is so important here. And so what the enteric nervous system is, is essentially also known as kind of the second brain. It is all of the nerve connections, the neuronal connections within the walls of the small and large intestine primarily, but throughout the entire digestive tract, this entire network exists. It actually has even more nerve endings and nerve connections and synapses than our central nervous system brain, like our first brain overall, based on just pure numbers and quantity. But this system is heavily connected to the vagus nerve and to the entire autonomic nervous system. And what the autonomic nervous system does is it the signals to the enteric nervous system via the vagus nerve or through sympathetic neuronal endings to either turn on digestion when we're in a parasympathetic state to activate that peristaltic motion to allow for macrophages to be doing their pruning job and ensuring that we're not getting into a pro-inflammatory state. I love that non-inflammatory kind of middle ground between pro and anti, that non-inflammatory function that is doing the job that it needs to do without going overboard and or being completely quiescent as well. So allowing for those macrophages to do their regular job, actually allow for that peristaltic motion to occur and for the food bolus to make its way unidirectionally towards the large intestine. So going through the three areas of the small intestine, getting into the absorption using the gall, the pancreatic enzymes, the bile to help absorb fat, absorb carbohydrates, absorb protein and amino acids, and to absorb some of the vitamins and minerals. The more fat-soluble ones are the ones that generally will come through the small intestine walls as well. And the enteric nervous system is the signaling system that tells the smooth muscle tissue, it tells the different layers of the intestinal walls what state we're in. Because if we're in a stressed state, when we're in a sympathetic state and the sympathetic nerves are firing and the vagus nerve is, needs to be downregulated because something stressful is occurring, we're running away from a threat or there's been a car accident and digestion isn't a priority. So that system needs to be shut down, needs to be turned off. And sympathetic activation will occur ideally for a short period of time where digestion is essentially turned off. And so that's where the enteric nervous system will signal to all of those other or all of those other cells, especially the smooth muscle cells and the macrophages, what to do in the state that they're in. In the sympathetic state, it's going to have that slightly more pro-inflammatory effect. It's going to say, we need to be on guard. Something might come in, just be aware, a little bit more conscious. And then in that 
non-inflammatory state, when we're in that parasympathetic activated state, we can allow for peristaltic motion to turn back on. Smooth muscles can start to contract and allow for that motion pattern to resume. And the macrophages can go back to that non-inflammatory regular pruning function. Yeah. And we've talked about the value of activating the parasympathetic nervous system, either through techniques like deep breathing and chanting and humming and exercise and all of those things, as well as the sort of the more modern ways of using uh, stimulators at the ear or at the neck or otherwise to activate the vagus nerve as a valuable therapy because of the immune reflex, the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway that has been now really been the subject of an immense amount of research over the last couple of decades, starting with uh, Kevin Tracy's work out of the Feinstein Institute mm. on Long Island. But the discovery of this immune reflex was initially involving the spleen, which is obviously one of the most important immune organs in the body, but it involves the vagus nerve and it involves modulating macrophages through the release of acetylcholine and this alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. What has been discovered more recently is that in the gut, there are, again, we talked about the two different types of macrophages, the macrophages that are sort of embedded in the muscle called the muscularis, not surprisingly, muscularis macrophages, and the macrophages that sit sort of in that endothelial mucosal layer, which are called mucosal macrophages. They have the ability to be modulated by the autonomic nervous system, much in the way that you just described, altering their pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory, non-inflammatory positioning based on the activation of the autonomic nervous system. Interestingly, I find it very interesting that the enteric nervous system is heavily involved in modulating these macrophages. It's, so it's not simply are what we typically talk about as the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetics and the parasympathetic being the vagus nerve. We don't usually talk about another or a third por uh, player in the nervous component or the nerve component of this process. We did talk about T cells being involved, but what we're talking about now is actually the enteric nervous system is activated by the vagus nerve. So in order to control the mucosal macrophages, what happens is the vagus nerve releases acetylcholine, not directly onto the macrophage, but onto the enteric nervous system cells. So the enteric neurons are then, they release the acetylcholine, or in some cases, norepinephrine, but the acetylcholine onto the macrophages, activating that alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor and downregulating the inflammatory posture of those macrophages. Interestingly, in the case of dealing with the mucosal macrophages, it still appears to be splenically mediated in some fashion, even though the enteric nerves are involved, the spleen still has some control over whether or not those macrophages are being affected by this reflex. With respect to muscularis macrophages, that process seems to be independent of the spleen. So you could even remove the spleen and it will not have an effect the, on, on that reflex. The reflex will still exist. Another difference between how that reflex functions in the spleen versus, and really in most of the rest of the body, versus in the intestines is that the 
macrophages are not simply downregulated. It's actually affecting the progenitor cells of T cells. So now T cells can either be pro-inflammatory, and in the gut that usually means Th17 cells, although you can still have T1 cells and T2 cells there, but Th17 cells are your active pro-inflammatory T cells. The alternative is to differentiate into Treg cells. And these are T cells that are regulatory, and, and we use the term regulatory really meaning as in moderating or downregulating inflammation. They're anti-inflammatory. And so one of the things that's part of this intestinal or gut-related anti-inflammatory reflex is not only down-regulating macrophage activity and innate immune cell, but it's actually regulating the adaptive immune cell differentiation. And this is an exciting new area because modulating the adaptive immune system has been a target of how to treat things like IBD, so Crohn's disease and, and ulcerative colitis, and other uh, immune dysfunctions in the gut. So it's exciting to understand a little bit more about how that's functioning and showing that it's multidimensional. It's a very fascinating and, and relatively natural and easy way to try to reduce the inflammation in your gut simply by activating your parasympathetic nervous system, which we've known how to do for thousands of years. Yeah, absolutely. The target tissue being the immune system, basically that's resident macrophages, the resident T cells in the muscularis layers. We know that the enteric nervous system has that effect. And so this new research is really playing an important role in understanding how these conditions develop, the Crohn's, the colitis, but also in what we can then do about it when diagnosis does occur. And neuromodulation seems to have a really positive potential outlook here as well. So this is really exciting. Now, let's continue on down through the digestive tract. So we've got this incredibly long, small intestine, which I don't have the exact number in my mind, but it is significantly longer from a length perspective than almost any other tissue within our body. And so this is where a lot of our nutrients are absorbed. It also goes to show how energy intensive the entire digestive process is. Digestion in itself requires a lot of energy to allow for that motion pattern to occur, to absorb a lot of these nutrients. So we want to ensure that we have a good amount of energy and good mitochondrial function at every layer of the body, at every cellular area in the body. So the quantity of nutrients, but the quality of nutrients that's coming in is very important. So when we're talking about food choices, talking about calorically dense but nutrient poor foods were likely to create an imbalance and allow for potential mitochondrial dysfunction which can lead to slow moving or dysfunctional intestinal tract and that can lead to things like IBS uh, or potentially IBD when it gets to be linked to some sort of bacterial dysbiosis as well. Now, when we get into the end of the small intestine, we then go through the final sphincter which is the ileocecal valve. And this is the valve from the ileum of the small intestine into the uh, ascending colon, which is on the right side of the body. This is also a potential important area. For a lot of people that have been diagnosed with or heard of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, this is actually one of the areas that can cause this is that ileocecal valve may not be functioning very well. And there is a heavy innervation to that sphincter 
through the vagus nerve as well. What can happen is reverse flow of some of the bacteria or some of the bolus matter from the ascending colon back into the cecum, allowing for bacterial ingrowth into the small intestine. So oftentimes when people are dealing with distension or bloating following a meal, it can happen because of an excessive amount of bacteria that have ended up back in the small intestine, which would be breaking down some of the food that we have leading to distension, leading to physically the production of gases that create that bloat feeling in the small intestine. So this is an important area that we need to look at. Any insight onto that ileocecal valve and vagus nerve connection there? No, it's one of the lower points of the vagus nerve extension into the body. So it's critically important, just the same way it's important in the upper esophageal sphincter and in the sphincter of Odi. All the way down, these valves and the control, the autonomic control of these valves is critically important and proper autonomic health will allow these things to function normally. And you talked about the bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, that can occur as a result of sort of reflux back up through that valve of material from the ascending colon into the small intestine. That reflux is is reversible. And sometimes that bacterial dysbiosis can be a function or it's more likely to occur as a result of constant sympathetic overdrive. We've talked about it on most of the podcasts at this point, so it's worth throwing it in here as well, that most of Western culture and most of Western lifestyle is driving sympathetic activation. But specifically with the digestive system, what we're putting in our systems is typically overprocessed, has too many calories in it. If you sort of go down the system, it's too sugary, it's got too much fat in it, or if it doesn't have enough, if it's been the fat's been replaced, so it's now a low fat, they're just putting in excess carbohydrates to maintain or increase the caloric value. So you end up with not enough stimulus early enough in eating to feel satiety. So you got too much food matter going through the system and without enough nutrients. And so all the way down the system, especially if you're stressed, you're going to end up with this motion that's not natural and with stops along the way that are pathological and allowing reflux, either reflux back up into the esophagus that can be damaging or reflux back up into the small intestine. So the same problems are causing multiple different dysfunctions. Yeah, depending on where that dysfunction is occurring, right? And where that issue is occurring. So this is why that digestive sequencing and that unidirectional pattern are so important and why that vagus nerve involvement needs to be at the forefront of ensuring that the digestive sequence is functioning optimally. Now, once that food bolus makes its way into the ascending colon, this is where it enters the large intestine. And we have basically three legs of the large intestine, the ascending, the transverse, and the descending colon before it enters the rectum and the anus. And this is where the microbiome interaction is the heaviest. We have approximately 80 to 100 trillion bacteria present within the large intestine. Large intestine is a thick-walled, larger tissue that is not very long overall in terms of pure length, but in terms of, let's say, girth, for example, the intestinal walls are much thicker and 
have a lot more protective mechanism because this is where the bacteria are going to do their symbiotic job of helping to break down our foods. This is where the fibers get to allow for that fiber bacteria interaction. And this is where our food choices feed our bacteria and our bacteria then create a symbiotic relationship for us. They provide us with particular nutrients that are necessary for the health of our gut lighting, things like butyrate, short-chain fatty acids. We feed them, they feed us. It's a symbiotic relationship that's going on there. We feed them with prebiotic fibers and they feed us with precursors to a lot of our neurotransmitters, things like 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is a precursor to serotonin things like precursors to dopamine and even other uh, neurotransmitters that are primarily found within the enteric nervous system. A lot of those precursors are found to be developed by that interaction of that gut bacteria and our internal cells within the large intestine. So this is where that real gut microbiome interaction is going to occur uh, a much higher level. The vagus nerve doesn't innervate the entire large intestine. It does hit to that ileocecal valve and a slight portion of the ascending colon, it does not generally have innervation to the transverse or the descending component of the colon. The parasympathetic innervation to those areas of the intestinal wall, or to the intestine, excuse me, is from the lower parasympathetic nerves that are found in the sacral and coccygeal regions that come out and send innervation to those particular areas of the digestive tract. Any insight onto that last area of the digestive tract there? Yeah, I think what you just said, just to, to add on to it, I would say it, it, just because the vagus nerve isn't directly innervating the transverse and the descending colon, and it does not mean that there's not cholinergic activity there. There is still cholinergic activity. And one of the things that has not, as far as I know, been elucidated completely is that tissue is just the same way the small intestine has tremendous number of macrophages. In fact, I would say that the descending, uh, the transverse and descending colon have uh, probably even more in terms of numbers of macrophages because there's so much more of the microbiome in the colon than there is even in the small intestines. We talked about the fact that that's a relatively microbiome light compared with what's going on in the colon. And as a result, there clearly needs to be autonomic control over that tissue. And we know what happens when that autonomic control is lost. You get pro-inflammatory sort of feedback, and that leads to inflammatory conditions like Crohn's disease that can be, again, life-threatening, debilitating. So there needs to be cholinergic input. Whether the cholinergic input is coming through solely through the enteric nervous system or whether it's coming through nerve roots coming out of the spinal column, yet to be elucidated as far as I know. Maybe it is known and I just don't know it yet, but love to learn more about it. But there is always cholinergic input. And it's possible that it's simply through the spleen and through the circulatory system, managing to release acetylcholine as needed to manage the inflammation that's present. But again, again, and I, we talk about it all the time, if you're in a sympathetically driven environment and you're not getting into that rest and digest mode, you are more likely to have an inflammatory state erupt because of the failure to maintain control and the sort of anti-inflammatory directional pressure of the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic. And one of the things that's worth noting is when you have 
one of these inflammatory bowel conditions, even when you're in remission. So there aren't gross lesions, you're not bleeding into your intestinal tract, you're not having the gross pain that you would experience when you're in a flare. When you're in that remission state, stress alone, simply social stress, can actually cause measurable levels of inflammatory activity in your digestive system. In fact, stool samples, there's something called fecal calprotectin. Fecal calprotectin levels will rise in a person, even though that person is in remission, they will rise solely because of social stress. So again, what you need to do is, if you're a person who's suffering with these conditions, is do your very best to become parasympathetically driven, not sympathetically driven. You will reduce the risk of having a flare. You'll reduce the risk of having what could potentially result in surgery or having to be medicated further than you may already be. And so it's very, very important that you sort of steer yourself away from, whether it be social or work or otherwise stress, into a parasympathetically driven environment, at least for a sizable portion of your life. You got to get a better portion of it in that state. Yeah, I couldn't say that any better myself. I completely agree. Fecal calprotectin is one of those measurements that we use on our uh, stool testing that we do with our patients. And so that's it's an important factor. And I will uh, often, in fact, I've had one come in just recently that had incredibly high levels of fecal calprotectin, and there was not significant dysbiosis within the microbiome findings as well. This is a, a case of potentially physical or emotional stress that's triggering heavy levels of inflammatory processes within the uh, large intestine. So this is one of those very common occurrences that we need to work more on lifestyle, stress management, deep breathing exercises, vagus nerve activation, getting you into that parasympathetic state more readily than allowing you to succumb to it and allow for that stress level to just go through the roof, causing significantly higher levels of inflammatory triggering. That you actually get in the spleen and in the bone marrow, sympathetic activation will drive the release of monocytes, which are the precursors to macrophages, into the bloodstream. And they're in a vigilant, in a sort of an activated state looking for a place to go. As we said before, the intestines are sort of a, a little bit unique in that intestinal lining tissue has two different types of macrophages. Those macrophages are not in their, by their nature, inflammatory. They are still doing lots of tasks that in other places in the body might result in a pro-inflammatory state, but they're doing it in a non-inflammatory way, trying to maintain a low inflammation state. But if you're stressed, if you have this high level of anxiety, if you have this high level of sympathetic activation, you're compounding the problem by releasing monocytes into the bloodstream that are looking for a place to go. If they identify the, the tissue in the intestines as a place to move into and become recruited as opposed to resident. I want to differentiate between resident tissue macrophages, which are the ones that should be there, and the recruited macrophages that were monocytes that moved into that tissue and became macrophages. They almost always move into a pro-inflammatory state. And so you have, just simply by being stressed, you have that tissue become pro-inflammatory. 
if they get triggered to act on that pro-inflammatory posture, then you can actually develop lesions and you can end up having inflammatory damage. So again, to the extent it's possible, minimize the sympathetic overdrive that you have simply by being here in Western culture. Yeah, doing your best to get yourself into that parasympathetic state as regularly and readily as possible. I think is so, so important. I think this is a great place to bring our discussion to an end, um, just as we get to the end of the intestinal tract and the digestive sequence. But this was a really wonderful episode where we were able to dig through the entire tract and essentially talk through different areas where the vagus nerve is heavily involved and allows for the sequence of digestion to occur, the importance of each of these different areas and the function of each of these different areas. So thank you so much for uh, being on this discussion with me. Any final thoughts? I think my final thoughts are going to be an echo of what I just said, which is that the sympathetic drive that we are all being pushed into is important in small doses. It's good for us to have in small doses, but in too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And this is a bad thing to have too much sympathetic overdrive. Get good sleep, get good food into your body, get some exercise, take the time out to be socially engaged in a positive way with people. That doesn't mean you don't go to work and do a great job. That's important too. doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with stresses to make certain that the world around you and your family are on the right track. But, but take the time to think, to read, to turn the lights off, turn the screens off at an early enough hour that you can unwind so that your sleep can be really restorative. Do all of those things. I know we're a bit of a broken record when we say it, but there literally isn't a more important message that we can pass along. Get some parasympathetic drive into your life. Absolutely. Great place to end. Thank you so much for this discussion. And please share this with anyone who you feel might need to hear this, anyone who's dealing with some sort of digestive dysfunction, anyone who's a clinician who should probably learn a little bit more about that gut-brain axis and how the vagus nerve is heavily involved in the digestive sequence. And please stay tuned for the next one because we have a lot of really exciting, amazing and new episodes coming up. A few wonderful guests that are uh, accepting our invitations, which is super exciting for both of us. And we are honored to be bringing this wonderful info to you. Have a wonderful day and let's keep upgrading your health.